to reference back a couple times. So if you have that open, it's page 992 in your pew Bible. Well, let me, uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll, uh, we'll get started. Father, we are grateful that uh, you call us to be your people and that you promise to be at work in our lives, uh, in and through your Spirit, uh, and working with your Word. And we thank you that it is your Son that we need to know more this morning. It is your Son that we need to hear from. It is uh, your Son that we need to... Um, to love more and uh, desire to be with more. And we thank you for the love that he has for us and uh, what he has done for us in his death and resurrection. We pray, Lord, that uh, even as we drill down a bit into some specifics that might feel a bit distant from his death and resurrection, the centrality of our faith, keep us from, uh, from straying from him this morning. Keep us from missing him. Uh, we pray that your spirit would be at work uh, in our hearts doing that. And we pray this for your glory and for our good. Amen. All right, um, looking at 1 Timothy. Quick review of the letter. This is written by Paul to Timothy. Timothy has been at the church at Ephesus. Uh, Paul has asked him to remain there, and he wants him to remain there in order to confront this false teaching that's taking place there, as we've talked about in previous weeks, we don't know exactly what the false teaching was, but it's got some kind of Jewish-Christian combination uh, happening, and it has at the heart some misunderstanding of the Old Testament law. It's got these elements of asceticism, which are these ways in which people would seek spiritual growth through some kind of, um, uh, I was going to say torture, too strong a word, mortification of the body. Um, uh, specifically in this letter, it's abstaining from certain kinds of foods and things, thinking that the creation is not good, and also abstaining from marriage, uh, as if that were a particularly uh, spiritual act. Uh, and so there's some of that happening. What happens in the end is that it results in this vain discussion, and they have all this conflict that's occurring in the midst of it. Um, on the other hand, though, because this is an ultimate, ultimately a denial of the gospel, Paul wants to put forward what is the true gospel and emphasize um, not so much even in the content of that gospel as the result of the gospel. And so that's what you have in verse 5 of chapter 1. It says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So in some ways he's saying, you're going to know the tree by its fruit. You're going to know whether this teaching is true and in accord with the gospel that has been proclaimed historically by the fruit, whether it's good fruit or bad fruit. So, um, in addition to that, and this is where we've been the last couple of weeks, these, these false teachers have at least some, um, at least informal authority in the church, and possibly even formal authority in the church, and that they might have been elders. Um, and, and for that reason, then, Paul moves into this section that deals with how to conduct oneself in the household of God. That's how he says it in chapter 3, verse 15. And so you get this, uh, you get this whole section on the life of the church and some very detailed sections on officers in the church. Uh, last week, Keith dealt with uh, this section on overseers or elders and the particular requirements of them there. This week, uh, Paul moves into the section on deacons in verses 8 through 13. Let me read that now, and then we'll, uh, we'll move into uh, looking a bit closer at it. 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13. <clears throat> Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, 
They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. All right, a couple questions to get us going here. How would you answer, and, and by the way, if you're comfortable standing when asking a question, that would actually be really helpful for everybody to hear you. Uh, if you're not comfortable, that's just fine. You don't have to. Uh, I'll repeat the question, but that actually would be, would be helpful. Somebody mentioned that in staff meeting this week. Um, okay, how would you answer the question, what is a deacon? <laughs> now nobody wants to talk, so you've got to stand. You don't have to stand. I'll repeat questions, answers, all that. We tried. A servant. Great. That's the most basic meaning of what this word uh, is. And so you find it's not just unique to uh, chapter 3 of 1 Timothy here. It actually uh, is found in multiple places in the New Testament. It means a servant. Yeah, what else? What do deacons do? Take care of the physical needs of the church? Yeah, absolutely. What else? Yes. Spoken like a true deacon. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it said taking care of widows and orphans, being involved in, uh, in mercy ministry both within the church and outside the church. And then Rick also said encouraging the liberality uh, amongst the saints, so that there's also this aspect of not only ministering to people in need and, and showing mercy to them, but actually encouraging the congregation as a whole to be gracious, merciful, gra- or grateful, and, uh, and generous. That's what I'm looking for, generous towards those in need. Yeah. Anything else? Any other things you might think of when it comes to deacons? Okay, so second question then. How does this passage describe the work of a deacon? Okay, right. Yeah, trick question. Huh? Maybe that was a little too much early on. Um, trick question. It doesn't say anything about uh, the tasks, the role of a, or what a deacon actually does in this passage. Uh, and that's going to be important for us. Uh, and as Clint said, there's, there's a, a focus once again on character or on characteristics of a deacon. Um, so why might Paul do that? If he's setting forth this, uh, the requirements for those who would be deacons, given the context of the letter and then just in general, why would he start here, you think? Why not say anything about the specific tasks Great, yeah, okay, without good character, why expect tasks, those good tasks to, uh, to flow forth from that person? Great, yeah. What else? Yeah, maybe they're already getting that right. That's, and, and this is where the context of this being a letter is important, and we talked about how 
Paul, in a lot of ways, assumes the content of this sound doctrine. He doesn't set it forth in this clearly articulated way because there's a context in place here. He, he's been to this church. He knows what's going on with Timothy, and it's assumed that Timothy would know that content, and it's likely, or at least possible, that they, they're doing this right and they know what some of the tasks may be. Yeah, what else? Yeah, great. Yeah, that, that, uh, that Paul might want to be sensitive here to the specific needs of a given congregation and, and ensure that the deacons are meeting those very specific needs rather than uh, those that might not be as important in a particular place. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, okay, we'll talk, I want to talk more about that. We'll do that down below underneath the characteristics, though. So um, here, here's the theme. Here's the, our focus that I want us to look at and think about as sort of an overarching thought for this passage, trying to apply it specifically to to us. The true gospel results in life-giving, sacrificial service to others. Okay, that's kind of the most basic statement. But with regard to this passage, as exemplified, okay, exemplified and led by the diaconate, okay? Um, so we just mentioned here how, how this call to the deacons is actually not something that's included in this passage. There's not... A, a list of things that they are to do here. It's, it's about their character more than anything else. Uh, but it is important to try and determine what that character or what that call is, right? Okay, so that's where I want to start before we actually get to this specific passage. So first, the, the call of deacons, excuse me. Um, the first possible place that people go to in trying to determine then what is it that deacons are called to do is often Acts 6, the seven appointed in Acts 6. Let me read that for us now. It's printed on your handout. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Remember, this is uh, in the middle of Acts where they have all things in common here. This is after Acts 2, the, the church continues to grow and increase, and they've got this huge growth problem on their hands, right? And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we, that is the apostles, should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and, the whole, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So what is the occasion here for these seven being appointed? What does Luke tell us? Problem of food distribution. Yeah, very basic needs that, that need to be met. They have all these people, specifically these widows. Uh, the, the Greek widows are being neglected, and so they, they need to be taken care of. Yeah, Andrew. Yeah, yeah, so these, uh, these specifically the, the apostles, these 12, um, 
uh, need some relief from this particular kind of work, and so these seven are appointed to that. Is there another hand over here? No? Okay. Um, so that, that sounds a lot like diaconal work, right? Those are the things, some of the things that we've just mentioned there. These meeting specific physical needs of the congregation. It's a mercy-oriented task. Um, and it's also, I, I mean, having to do with this distribution, it has something to do with the finan- finances or the, the giving of the church in that way as well. If you think to what we've talked about, that sounds a lot like our, um, what our diaconate does. Okay, two problems, though, with saying these are the first deacons. One is a pretty obvious one. They're not called deacons, right? Nowhere in here is, is this said, to, or are these uh, seven uh, said to be deacons. Uh, the other bigger issue is that uh, their work is actually different from that of deacons. Not in this passage, but actually in the next two chapters. Okay, And here's what happens. You probably remember Stephen, if you're familiar with the Bible. In Acts 7, gives what, is, uh, what might be the longest sermon in the book of Acts. Remember right before he gets stoned and has this entire... That didn't sound good. Right before he gets stoned. He literally gets stoned. And he's, he gives this incredible sermon of the entire history of, the, uh, of, of redemption, of the Bible. It's, it's, it's this sermon that, that goes, uh, stretches the entire Old Testament, shows how Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things. So he is a teacher and a preacher as well. In the next chapter, in Acts 8, you get Philip, who also preaches and teaches in that, in that passage. So it, it, there, it gives a lot of people pause to say this is actually, uh, that, that these guys are the first deacons, because they have a broader role than what, uh, than what deacons uh, have later on. Okay, so, so why, why is this the case? Here's, I think, a better way to think about this passage that can help us um, eventually understand the work of the diaconate better. Uh, we've got to start with the holistic ministry of the apostles. So if we get to this, and this is really Andrew's point as well, initially it would seem that the 12 apostles were responsible for these tasks, right? It, they, they are taking these responsibilities from the, uh, from the apostles so that they can devote themselves exclusively to, to teaching, preaching, and prayer, the ministry of the word, okay? And so uh, at some point, the apostles were meeting these uh, material needs and were a part of this mercy ministry as well. So on the one hand, it is clear that original diaconal ministry was in the hands of the apostles, okay? So diaconal ministry does arise here, We need to go a step further, though. Why did the apostles have holistic ministry in this way? And the answer to that is because Jesus had that sort of ministry, okay? So this gets to the holistic ministry of Jesus, this ministry of word and deed that the apostles were were given actually finds its origin in Jesus himself, okay? They, They serve as representatives of Jesus and they do so uh, both in this ministry of word and ministry of deed. So if you think back to any of the Gospels, but we'll just pick Matthew, Jesus comes on the scene and states initially, he, he calls out saying, repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay? And then after calling the first disciples, he sets out to minister to people, and this is how he describes his ministry. This is on your sheet. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. 
So from the start, Jesus' ministry is one of word and deed, both components together. Okay, So he's proclaiming this message of the kingdom as well as demonstrating it and enacting it in his ministry of healing and the way in which he um, provides for people in their very material needs. So here's why this is important for us. Is that the, the gospel is something that is much more than just the salvation of individual souls. Okay? The, the, the gospel is rightly described by Jesus. <laughs> he describes it as this. That's why it's right. Um, as a gospel of the kingdom that encompasses all things. Okay? It is the rescue of individual people being brought back and reconciled to God by the, the atoning work of Jesus. But it is also the renewal of the entire world. That's how the Bible ends, is with Jesus saying, Behold, I make all things new, and we're in the new heavens and the new earth. So there's this very physical component to this, to this uh, huge gospel message. So here's um, a pretty crude, uh, some work in Microsoft Word with some insert symbol um, on your sheet. That begins with Jesus as ministering in word and deed, and then goes to the apostles representing both aspects. And then it, it, it cuts to the side here, um, and Sinclair Ferguson is the one who uses this phrase, apostolic lieutenants, um, because these, these seven are really assistants to the apostles that are still embodying some aspects, uh, of both aspects of their ministry. Primarily deed, but also word, again, in the example of Stephen and Philip. And then the, deacon, the deacon's ministry flows from that, and then you see the other way down with elders, overseers, and bishops being devoted to ministry of the word. And so that's where we see, even in the church now, the, this ongoing aspect of both word and deed, word carried out by the elders, deed carried out by the deacons. Not saying that elders don't have responsibilities to be merciful and deed-oriented, nor does it mean that the deacons don't have to concern themselves with prayer and the word or something. Every Christian is, is called to do uh, both of these things, but there's specific tasks given to the church that continues and represents Jesus' ministry in that way. Um, and so here, just to, to sum it up here, that Jesus himself came as a servant, Mark 10, 45. He, he is uh, the ultimate uh, deacon in that way. For even the Son of Man came out to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So deacons are servants who lead in ministries of deed. It's just a little background as to how we get there. Here's our um, PCA Book of Church Order. Just start with 9-2 there. It's the duty of the deacons to minister to those who are in need, to the sick, to the friendless, and to any who, who may be in distress. It is their duty also to develop the grace of liberality in the members of the church, to devise effective methods of collecting the gifts of the people, and to distribute these gifts among the objects to which they are contributed, among the objects to which they are contributed, they shall have the care of the property of the congregation, both real and personal, and shall keep in proper repair the church edifice and other buildings belonging to the congregation. In matters of special importance affecting the property of the church, they cannot take final action without the approval of the session and consent of the congregation. So, three big categories: mercy, finances, and property. Okay. That's, that's the diaconal task. It's what they're called to here. There's this willingness to serve and meet the needs of the congregation. And again, as a reminder, in terms of application for all of us, um, all Christians are called to this sort of deed ministry. Okay? Just as all Christians are called to studying the Word and are called to prayer. And so both the roles of the elders and the deacons are those of, of leading the congregation in these particular areas. But it's not a situation where we say, well, 
deacons have that mercy thing taken care of. That means I don't have to think about it at all, okay? Uh, instead, we give ourselves to this ministry because this is what Jesus calls us to, and this is what it means to be a Christ follower. And we follow the deacons as they lead us in ministry in this way. So that's some of the, uh, of the call there, okay? Any questions or thoughts on that? Yeah, Andrew. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think um, there is the call to uh, show mercy, to, especially to those who are the household of faith. So I do think there, there is, um, there's priority to people within the congregation um, who have needs that need to be met. Um, but the, the, it's certainly the case that, um, I mean, you go to the parable of the um, Good Samaritan um, and other examples where... Um, and even Jesus' ministry, of course, extends beyond um, those who would be uh, initially thought of as those of the household of faith. Uh, now they became those. So I think there's got to be a priority to our people, for sure, and that they would not be neglected in, in terms of their particular needs. But uh, just as this call to mercy goes out and, and we're, we're to, um, to love our neighbor in that way, to use the language of the... Uh, Good Samaritan, it does extend beyond the walls of the church and is something for the deacons to lead us into in various um, places. And I think just in general, if you think about Jesus' ministry, uh, God became flesh uh, and he came into this physical broken world, and this gets back to the scope of the gospel. Um, he's making this physical world new. The, this, the, this place matters. And I think the incarnation is a picture of that for us and that he's taking on flesh and he's with these particular people. That's also the case for us as a, as a church, to care for the particular place where we are um, and try and meet needs of those around us. So I know that's not hard and fast or like providing all the um, um, necessary parameters for how you would do that, but I think it's generally been our practice to prioritize needs of people in the congregation, but also recognize the call extends beyond them as well. Great question. Yeah, Max. Thank you for standing. So how does all that fit? Is that your que is that your question? No, no, I'm just making a comment. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and I think um, what what would be important about that is one, the apostles are commissioned 
by Jesus to be his representatives in the world, um, which is why they, uh, they write scripture, and it is scripture, because they are speaking and writing uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and are writing on behalf, they're, they're almost functioning like power of attorney in a real, in a huge way. Um, representing Jesus in that way. And so, I'd want to say, too, there's not a distinction. If, if the deacons are established uh, by the apostles, then they're established by Jesus, because they represent Jesus. And we'd have to do a little bit more on uh, the, that passage in Ephesians, and um, uh, where those gifts are listed, as well as in Corinthians. But the passage in Ephesians 2.20 um, speaks of this foundation, that the church being built on this foundation of the apostles and prophets. Um, and so there's something unique there about that particular role that was a foundational role in the life of the church. And so it's the teaching and understanding of many, including us, that the ongoing offices of the church are those of elder and deacon with a distinction in the office of elder, of a teaching elder and a ruling elder. There are other people who have different views on that, but the thought uh, that behind it is that there were these foundational offices and roles given in the establishment of the church that included both uh, apostleship and uh, New Testament prophecy that have since ceased because uh, the foundation has been laid and we have now the scripture. That's a much bigger conversation to have, but um, those are some basic comments just on how to how I'd respond to that. Um, thank you. Um, characteristics and character of deacons. If everybody's called to this, how are we to distinguish who's to do it? Well, uh, if you notice, and this is where I say I wanna, I'm going to reference what Keith said last week, many of these things look very, very similar between the elders and deacons, right? There's a lot of repetition here in terms of the character uh, that we'd be looking for. The main difference is that of this call to teach. There's, this, there, there's a specific call uh, that says able to teach and that of the overseers that is absent from the requirements for deacons. Um, there is this, uh, there's a phrase in verse 5 of chapter 3 where they're to, to be able to take care of the church of God. There's not, um, there isn't that in, in the um, section on the deacons. So we could say that this, uh, this office of elder is one of, of teaching and oversight, and those are uh, portions that are absent from this office of deacon that are not, um, not present there. Okay, focus on character. Um, why, uh, I guess we've already mentioned why that would be. Um, let me ask it this way. This is, we could discuss this for just a couple minutes there. Um, what are the dangers of focusing on skills, ability, and gifts over character? Okay. It's, yeah, it just becomes works, and those doing them just get, can just get really puffed up in doing them. Yeah, and, and their, their character doesn't follow that, the gifts that they're exhibiting. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yes. 
Yeah, that, that's a great example of how uh, of the um, uh, of how we we this is not just a, it's not an office where they, they are responsible for um, doing all of the mercy ministry, but uh, to lead out and uh, be responsible for and and uh, you're absolutely right the, the size of our congregation is such that it's very obviously necessary in that way. Yeah. Um, well, a, a quick note on this, I think. It's very easy for us to prize, and Keith talked some about this last week, to prize gifts, skills, ability over and above character. Um, it's obvious, it's apparent a lot of times, it's easier to evaluate, and I think in our um, kind of celebrity culture, uh, this is a real danger for us uh, to, to raise up these gifts, abilities, and skills above character as qualifications for either office. Uh, and that, that's something I think we've got to be very, very careful about. Skills are a lot easier. This, I think this is important to remember. Skills can be developed over time in a ways that are much easier, I think, than character being developed. Um, so that's an important thing for us to keep in mind with this focus on character um, as we move into to these requirements. So what are these requirements? Um, and, and some of these I want to ask this question. Why would this be particularly important given the role of the deacon. So first, self-control in verse 8. They're said to be dignified or serious-minded. One commentator says, this doesn't mean gloomy, right? Like dignified or serious-minded. Um, what it means is to be, uh, it's, it's worthy of respect, okay? Similar to the call to the, uh, the overseers in that way, to be above reproach and respectable. Not double-tongued. So this has to do with the way that they speak as well. Why might that be particularly important? in the role of a deacon, to not be insincere or to not be double-tongued or uh, deceptive in the way that you'd speak. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, all these things are very important in all Christians. Yes, yeah. It, yes, it would certainly could tear up the church, tear apart a community when there's that sort of um, saying one thing in one context and saying another in a different context. Yeah, Andrew. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's a yeah, great example. Um, Andrew had said that there's the temptation, um, maybe in a context of wanting to appear to save face, wanting to appear more merciful or compassionate, and then like blaming your inability to do something on the unwillingness of the church or something along those lines, where you make yourself look better. Um, and do harm to the church in that way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, a third, third uh, characteristic here. Not addicted to much wine or not given to excessive drinking. This again gets to the, uh, the misuse of alcohol. Again, it's, it's addiction that's prohibited. This is some of what we talked about last week. Why, why would that be particularly important, do you think, for a deacon? 
Yeah, yeah, this, it's going to exhibit some sort of uh, failure of self-control, show a lack of self-control, uh, and failure to exercise wisdom. And, um, and it makes you, you know, puts you in a place where you're not able to make good judgments and make good choices. Um, so we talked some about that last week. I don't know that we need to, to talk much more about that this week. Keith covered it um, in terms of not being addicted to much wine. Fourthly, uh, not greedy for dishonest gain having to do with money. Why might that be a particular requirement for deacons? Yeah, thou shalt not steal. Yeah. What are the deacons working with? Yeah, handling finances of the church. Um, and so th- this is a very specific, uh, I think something that's very specific to, that, to the office to say, um, yeah, th- they're handling money and there's this call to uh, cultivate liberality and generosity and so if there's this misuse of money or this desire to attain money and use it uh, in a power, in a way to, uh, to uh, exercise power over somebody in some way, um, could be really unhealthy uh, and, and set somebody up in a very, for a dangerous place. And 1 Timothy 6 is going to deal with this issue of greed for all people. Um, we'll get to that in a few weeks. Okay, so that self, I kind of put all those underneath this category of self-control. Uh, then embracing the faith, uh, verse 9, to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Um, what does this mean? It means that, that, this, uh, that the deacon is going to embrace Jesus, trust in Jesus, embrace this faith, have this fundamental grasp and understanding of it, okay? This mystery of the faith. Um, but then also, uh, with a clear conscience, is to say, live in accord with that faith. Live consistently with the gospel. And again, as Keith said last week, this does not mean sinlessly. When we talk about being above reproach, it does not mean sinlessly. This means a life that is a, a life of faith and repentance, continually embodying um, what this gospel message is, which includes repenting when we fall short of that which is inevitable. So embracing the faith... Uh, and then tested. There's this call for testing uh, in verse 10. Why might that be important? Why include testing? Great, yes. That's uh, where, where the true character is going to come out. There, there's a call here. That the type of test is not uh, explained, this, uh, the, the nature of the test, but at the very least, these character qualifications need to be seen over time. And so that's they, they are to show themselves blameless. Again, that doesn't mean sinless, but um, blameless. Um, so, point of application for us quickly here. We will likely, it's possible, I, should, I probably shouldn't give a timeline. In the next year, our hope is to uh, open up nominations again for more deacons. So, what do we do at that point? Well, look for those at that point who are already serving now. Look for those who are already deaconing, Okay. Those are the men that to, to think about nominating for this particular office, okay? Uh, and so that, that's something to keep in mind is to look where these gifts are already being exercised and then go from there. Okay, uh, so the big question in this passage uh, is verse 11. Uh, the question of women and the diaconate. Verse 11. If you notice, and this is where it's helpful if you've got a Bible open so you can see um, a couple things. Verse 11, their wives or women, that's footnoted in the ESV, likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Um, I had a professor in seminary who uh, 
who relayed this story of somebody coming to him and saying, I'm sure it is so illuminating to know the original languages of the Bible. I bet you get so much more out of the Bible than somebody just reading English. And his response was, well, it pretty much means the same thing in English as it does in the original languages. Um, And that's not to downplay the significance of the languages, but his point was that um, for the most part, um, we shouldn't go digging for secret meaning in the original languages. Um, That's not a good way forward. However, there are times when it does matter, and it matters right here because every translation is an interpretation, okay? Every translation is an interpretation, and you see the editors or translators of the ESV have wrestled with this particular translation. That's why they footnoted it, okay? Um, This is an important one because this word, gunaikos, is just uh, the word for women or wives. It could be used either way. And so you have to let context to determine how you will translate it. That's why this is a big issue. Um, So we go through these arguments quickly here on either side. Um, this, again, it's great if you've got a Bible open for this. Arguments in favor of translating it women, okay? One is this parallel between likewise. You see this, and this is, uh, if you've you got your Bible open here, there's uh, this likewise uh, in the way and it uh, goes from elders to deacons, in verse 8, and then it seems that in verse 11 that it could also be setting forth um, this category of women, likewise, okay? So, Paul's language here is that there could be some sort of parallel between deacons likewise and women likewise, that it could be that there are three sets of qualifications here. Elders, male deacons, and deaconesses, however you want to say it. That's the first argument for women. A second one, there's not a parallel statement in the qualifications regarding the elder's wife. So that's this argument that says, if what's being said here is that there are requirements for deacons' wives, that appears kind of odd because there's not that for, uh, for elders' wives, right? So maybe, maybe the, there is this separate group of women that's being specified here. Uh, thirdly, qualifications for women in verse 11 are virtually synonymous to the qualifications for the men, okay? They're called to be... Uh, dignified, not slanderer, sober-minded, faithful in all things. These things are similar to what's been said before. So, some conclude from this that women should be ordained to the office of deacon. Um, Others conclude that there's this separate office or role of deaconesses that are like assistants to the deacons, but maybe it's not an ordained position, okay? Um, So it would be like an assistant position. Another possible added support to this perspective is from Romans 16, where it speaks of Phoebe. I I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant or deaconess, and there's the Greek word diakonon, of the church, and it goes on here. So, the, the, But here's the point. That could be translated and is in uh, ESV as servant. It might just mean servant. Um, that would fit contextually. So th- that verse doesn't add a whole lot to this case. So those are reasons why some say women should be included in the diaconate. Now here's the argument, here are the arguments in favor of translating it their wives. First is, it would be odd to speak of male deacons in verses 8 through 10, then jump to deaconesses in verse 11 for this one sentence, and then immediately go back to male deacons, which is what uh, he does in verse 12, let the deacons each be the husband of one wife. Okay? A second argument, uh, unlike the qualifications for elder, deacon, and widows, there's no mention of marital faithfulness for the deaconesses. It's absent from this, so if this is a separate office, that might be 
uh, it's a bit unusual. Uh, thirdly, the qualifications for these women are very brief relative to the qualifications of the others. And then fourthly, it fits the flow of the text to go from, if, we're, if we translate it as wives in verse 11, to then into family in verse 12. That would fit the flow of it in that way. Okay? So, the question is, if it is to be translated their wives, then why would it be included and elders' wives not be? Um, and here's, here's the way most go in answering this. That it lies in the nature of the diaconal ministry. Okay? Um, so, this is how Dr. Ferguson says this. In all probability, the way that the diaconal ministry was exercised in the New Testament was more family-oriented than it is today. And so, there would be this prominent role for the wives of deacons in carrying out this particular type of ministry within a particular household. And so, he says, Dr. Ferguson that is, there's not a convincing argument for deaconesses in the New Testament, neither is there a definitive argument against it. Okay? So, there are actually multiple, even narrowly, I mean, reformed denominations in our little sliver of Christendom, uh, of the church, there are uh, reformed denominations that do believe there should be a role for deaconesses. So, um, uh, our denomination is not one of them, but there, there is a significant need for charity in this realm, okay? Um, this is not an easy biblical issue to determine. So, and I hope that you've even just seen that today. Um, so that, that's where it stands now. I think we need a lot of charity there, and we need to uh, look at the Word together to study uh, what it's saying there. So at the very least, we've got to say that these women are involved enough in diaconal service that they, they are listed, and that there are requirements for them. Okay? Yeah, Sam. Uh, that is the official position of the Book of Church Order in Chapter 9. There's, um, there are churches within the PCA, that, that there is this provision in Chapter 9 of our Book of Church Order that allows for uh, assistance to deacons, men and women. And so there are churches that will, uh, there are PCA churches that might uh, have uh, deaconesses commissioned to do work, but they're not technically ordained to the office of deacon. And that's reflected on a, there are some churches that do believe, even within our denomination, of course, that, that this should be, that women should be in the office of deacon. Yeah. And some, some use that language thinking there seems to be some kind of role here, we want to get at that by commissioning. Um, yes. Absolutely. Yes, yeah, I think that the nature of the, that work is, yes, is very much carried out by women in our church. Yes? Yeah, you, don't, you don't need a title to serve, right? You don't have to say, okay, I'm going to call you this, therefore your job is just the job description. You don't need a job description. I mean, there's no question. There's some things I think that women can do in serving other women that men cannot do. Yes, yeah. That's certainly the case. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and um, yeah, what I want to drive home is that this is, a, uh, this is not an issue that's uh, totally governed by culture in some way. This is a tough biblical issue, so that's why I want to keep emphasizing charity and how we would understand that. There are people within our congregation that differ on how this should be understood. Yeah, Lynn.
the, the tricky thing is that the pronoun's not in the Greek. Um, yeah. So that, that, it, that makes, it, makes it harder. <laughs> um, yeah, okay, uh, we are out of time. Um, real quick, there are these requirements for women, and then there's a requirement for family that corresponds very closely to that of overseers. There's this benefit of character in verse 13. I have the note from the ESV Study Bible that I think very concisely says that. Application for us, all of us, encourage our de- we need to encourage our deacons by praying for them. That's probably a big obvious one. But also participating with them. If their call is to lead us in these areas, then let's follow them in these areas and give ourselves to this work of mercy and this work of liberality uh, that, that they are leading us in. Um, So let me pray quickly. Father, we're grateful uh, for your word. Uh, We thank you that we can uh, trust you as the author of your word and that uh, your spirit is at work uh, in and with us as we uh, study your word together. Um, Help us and lead us to understand your word in greater ways and to uh, follow you uh, in your ministry in this world. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.